So hi everyone, hi a really warm welcome to you as you land in this evening um, to the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation's keynote session, so longer session of an hour this evening. And um, as is our custom um, uh, with the, the community here, just inviting you to use the chat function just to say hello and maybe say where you are in the UK or in the wider world, where are you joining us from? And, and maybe also perhaps mention roughly the number of times you've attended um, OMF evening sessions. Maybe you just come for the keynote or perhaps you come regularly for the, the uh, evening practice sessions. So starting to see some uh, comments in the chat from Cindy in Boston. Welcome, Cindy. Um, over a year, and Mikkel in Denmark. Um, first time here, extra warm welcome to you, Mikkel, from Denmark. Um, uh, Alicia in Woburn, and, uh, and um, Sally in Norfolk. Hi, Sally, good to see you. And uh, from, from Simon in Hackney, same as myself. And uh, from Jane over in Italy, really warm welcome. So just chat starting to go really fast now. I can see there's Christina in Germany and Ose in Rotterdam, uh, sorry, Lulu in Rotterdam and Ose in uh, Slovenia. And uh, Daniel in Lyon. So people coming in from lots of different parts of the world, from Cathy in Canada. So lots of people in the UK, from Manuel in Peru. Really warm welcome to you. Kay in Denmark also, and Eckhart in Hamburg since the beginning. Uh, very familiar to, uh, good to see you, Erkhart. And from Maria in uh, Tartu in Estonia. So really warm welcome to everyone as you land in this evening. So um, on behalf of all the team here at Oxford Mindfulness Foundation, as you arrive in, and maybe it's a good afternoon actually, or even a good morning for you, depending on where you are. So welcome to our monthly keynote lasting an hour and um, where Dr. Carly Hunt uh, will speak about science-backed science tips on how to maintain practice. Um, so the plan this evening is for a short mindfulness practice followed by Carly's talk and then around about 7.45 p.m. there'll be a few minutes for Carly to respond to any questions that you might have that you place in the chat. So I'm Andy, I'm one of the uh, teachers and teacher trainers um, here, and um, I'm going to offer a grounding mindfulness practice, uh, grounding and anchoring. So as always, the invitation is to take really good care, um, to take part in a way that feels right for you, to know that there's always options available, to have your eyes closed or open, or to choose which parts of the practice to take part in. And um, so let's begin, maybe let's begin by making a deliberate shift in posture, making adjustments to how we are sitting or standing or lying, perhaps, so that your um, posture supports a degree of a degree of presence, perhaps, and of receptivity. And um, maybe allowing the eyes to close or just lowering the gaze, see what's best for you. And um, 
just honouring the sense also of a community that's coming here together to practice and learn and support each other in solidarity with each other as we begin the practice. And maybe as you begin to tune into the body, um, a moment to notice the weather pattern of current experience, to notice maybe any body sensations that are showing up here in the present moment. And also any emotions, mood states, feelings of one kind and another. Any thoughts that you notice passing through the mind, just checking in with our present moment experience. And having kind of seen more clearly what our experience is here in the present moment, beginning to move attention from perhaps the region of the head through the chest and the abdominal region, the back, the abdominal region, through the pelvis and the legs and right down into the soles of the feet. And not so much a thinking about the soles of the feet as, as sensing them. Maybe noticing there's points of light pressure or maybe a heavier pressure, even a stronger pressure. Noticing perhaps the feel of fabric on skin. And maybe sensations of temperature, there might be contrasting temperatures in the from the undersides of the toes right down to the lower heel. Maybe not many sensations at all, and that's really fine too. Perhaps uh, widening attention now to encompass the upper feet and both our feet and also the toes in both feet. Maybe dialing up on quality of, of infusing or noticing with a quality of beginner's mind, sensing as if for the very first time the feet, a quality of curiosity. Without too much effort though, just a kind of light curiosity. And, and then when you're ready, having kind of illuminated the soles of the feet with this torch beam of mindful attention, beginning to move attention up through the legs and into the backs of the upper legs and where the body meets the chair. Perhaps here there's much stronger sensations of contact and pressure and squashiness as the body meets the solidity of the chair. As we sense the effects of gravity that 
hold us here solid and rooted to this earth. Perhaps noticing that mind is, moves on, of course, and mind wanders and plans and analyzes and remembers in thoughts and images and movies. And when you notice for now, just in the moment of noticing a kind of, oh, congratulating oneself perhaps. Or nice, and then just gently letting be and returning attention to where the, the body meets the chair. Perhaps there's subtler sensations here too of fabric on skin. Maybe of temperatures. Tingles and buzzes. So now having steadied the tension a little on the, the seat. The invitation is to move again, the torch beam of awareness, attention, up through the trunk of the body and down the arms, maybe noticing the weight of the arms and, and into the hands. Perhaps the sensations of air on the backs of the hands. the knuckles, moving up the backs of the fingers and noticing their shapes in the present moment, bent, straight. And maybe the sensitivities of the, the fingertips, there's sensations here. a sort of receiving of sensations more than a searching for. Moving down the insides of the fingers and perhaps noticing how the fingers and the thumbs maybe make contact with each other or with other parts of the body. the palms of the hands too. What's sensed here? Perhaps um, knowing or from previous practice or Maybe in this practice, what's the most steady anchor for me? Maybe it's the soles of the feet or the contact with the seat, the sensations here, perhaps even the, the whole of the lower body, or maybe the sensations in the hands. Or perhaps it feels useful maybe to begin to 
Notice the breath where you sense it best. And then the tip of the nose, the nostrils, the chest or the in the abdominal region. Landing attention on the breath as a possible anchor. Just this sensation. Or just this breath. And this one. And in the moment, there'll be an invitation to open your eyes and you might want to gently and lightly kind of experiment with holding and anchoring awareness as well as um, perhaps uh, as we move into the introduction to the keynote, as well as having the uh, tuning into the keynote itself and uh, listening and receiving information and learning, knowing that the anchors are always available to your particular anchors, maybe a degree of your attention on the anchor and a degree of your attention on listening and receiving. So when you're ready, just beginning to open the eyes if they've been closed. And again, a really warm welcome to all of you landing in this evening. As perhaps some of you arriving after initial introductions, I'm Andy, one of the uh, teachers here at OMF. Um, and uh, it's really quite wonderful to practice together as part of a community, part of this Oxford mindfulness community. And um, I'm curious actually as to whether community and solidarity might show up somewhere in Carly's talk on maintaining practice. Uh, um, so this leads us nicely into an introduction and a really warm welcome to Dr. Carly Hunt. And, as the talk progresses, if you have any questions for Carly, please pop them in the chat. And later in the session, I'll ask Carly some of those questions on, on your behalf. And towards the end of the session, we'll post a link to Carly's website and any other relevant info that arises. So Carly is a psychologist in a private practice and a research associate in the department of anesthesi anesthesiology at the University of Virginia. I knew I would stumble over that word. Um, her research examines uh, mindfulness-based and positive psychological interventions for chronic pain and illness. And she's uh, published uh, on topics in health and, and positive and sports performance psychology in uh, leading academic journals. Um, she teaches uh, undergraduate coursework on the science of happiness and counsels uh, athletes, students and adults on 
improving health, improving well-being and on performance. And uh, she's also, Carly's also a certified yoga instructor and, and uh, contributes uh, writing uh, articles to Mindful magazine. Um, so I'm going to hand over to, again, extend a warm welcome to Carly and hand over to her for a keynote presentation. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you so much, Andy, for that um, that introduction. And it's really just such a privilege to be here um, with a group that really just spans the globe. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about um, this topic of maintaining um, a meditation and mindfulness practice. And um, this topic has been fascinating to me on both personal and professional levels for, for many years now. And um, I'll start like starting off with the personal. It was about 15 years ago that I was drawn to meditation and mindfulness practices. And I was exposed to those through a Buddhist studies course I was taking at my university to fulfill a theology requirement. And, um, I was so inspired, um, by the Buddhist and Eastern, um, religions and philosophies. And I signed up for a weekend long mindfulness retreat in my early twenties. And, um, it was at the time it felt like one of the hardest things I had ever done. I was essentially fighting to stay awake um, the entire weekend. I was bored. I was doubtful. I thought, why did I think this was a good idea? Um, all of these things. And I essentially thought to myself when it was over that I would never do anything like that ever again, um, which of course didn't turn out to be true. I was so deeply drawn to this practice that I did return to meditations and retreats and classes and um, and I did develop what I would describe as a frequent but sporadic regular meditation practice. And um, I continued to sort of um, anecdotally and getting into the research, I was starting to learn about how barriers to meditation practice are really commonplace. Um, another story that I'm reminded of is my academic advisor, when I was starting my PhD in psychology, I said to her, I wanted to start doing research on meditation. And, and she said, well, you might want to start looking at who can benefit from this practice and how do we help people adopt this really into their daily lives. Um, and she herself had been on a, a lengthy meditation retreat specifically for people living with episodic migraines. And she was a migraine sufferer. And she shared that by midweek, over half the participants had left because it was so challenging. Um, so all that is to say, if you are struggling with a regular practice, and I'll talk more about the research around this, um, you're in good company. This is not something to be ashamed of or to beat yourself up about. And, and I'll, I'll say more about that. But getting into, you know, saying a bit about what the research says on barriers. So what are the what are the barriers? I mean, I think we're probably all aware of our own personal barriers that we experience, but I think it's helpful to reflect on um, what we know about, about common barriers um, and how they may apply to us. So for example, a study that I published with colleagues in 2020 found that new novice level meditators perceive barriers in, in a few different um, areas. So the first one is doubt, doubts about whether or not meditation is a beneficial thing to do. Um, and, and, and that's important as I'll talk more about later when it comes to health behaviors of any kind, meaning behaviors that benefit our health and well-being, we do need to trust that they're benefiting us and possibly benefiting others around us as well to, to sustain the practice. Um, Another barrier that we found was that people 
sometimes struggle with doubts around whether they know how to meditate correctly, so to speak. Um, and oftentimes a misperception arises that if the mind is busy, it means that we're not practicing correctly. Um, but of course, mindfulness is much larger than those dichotomies of busy mind or quiet mind. Um, and so, so trusting that we, that we, that we know that, that our technique is, is, is where we want it to be. Struggling to find the time and space for practice is another barrier that comes up. Um, so, so creating time, finding time um, in our busy schedules is, is certainly a challenge that I think many grapple with. And lastly, we also found that some folks were reporting this feeling that meditation was in conflict with their cultural or familial norms, meaning what, what tends to be done in our culture or in our family. So if we have family members, for example, that think it's odd or strange to meditate, it might be harder to, to keep up the practice on a regular basis. So other research has also shown that after people complete a formal meditation training class, like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or mindfulness-based stress reduction, their frequency of at-home meditation practice tends to drop off. And conceivably that's related to the lack of the supportive um, fellow students and teacher, um, teacher around that. And there's also some interesting qualitative data that's come out, meaning in-depth interviews with people um, about a topic where experienced meditators have shared how difficult it is to really contact and be with difficult experiences that arise in the practice. And I imagine everyone on this call can resonate with this, that when we sit down to practice meditation, we're really opening ourselves up to the fullness of our experience, to the arising and passing of, of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And it's hard to be with those sorrows, especially when we're conditioned in our daily lives to turn away from what's difficult as opposed to opening and turning towards. And I think that's definitely one of the barriers I've noticed in myself, either consciously or subconsciously, is this fear that I won't be able to be with or handle what's arising. So again, the barriers, if you're experiencing barriers to formal practice, um, this is definitely this is definitely normal. And I hope that some of the tips that I'll offer today can be supportive. Um, but Coming back, I think it's important to talk a bit about what the research, what the science is saying about regular at-home meditation practice specifically, this act of meditating in a formal way um, consistently. And on a basic level, does regular meditation practice matter for our health and well-being? Or is it enough to, to take a formal meditation class, let's say, without sort of integrating the practice into daily life? And Somewhat surprisingly, the importance of daily practice has been a subject of some debate among researchers in recent years. Um, and there are a few different reasons for this, but again, disentangling the specific benefits of at-home regular practice versus participating in a formal training class that's led by a teacher. And researchers have tended to study this question by following folks who take a formal class like mindfulness-based stress reduction and asking them to record how much they're meditating at home. And then they when the class is over, they add up how many minutes people meditated at home over the course of that intervention and look to see if those folks who meditated more were benefiting from the class to a greater degree than those who were meditating less or maybe not at all. And so the findings using that method are pretty mixed. So there have been many studies that have shown that if you meditate more outside the class, you're going to benefit more from, from taking the program. But other studies show that it really doesn't matter. Like those people that don't really meditate 
in their life are benefiting about the same as those who as those who um, as those who do. So, so this could mean a few different things. Um, these inconsistent findings. Um, the first being that there are other factors besides how long we practice that matter. So. It could be the quality of practice, the quality of attention and effort that we bring to our practice. Um, and meditation quality is kind of difficult to assess. And so that's really what I, I see that as sort of an emerging area in terms of this research. Um, they also speak to how powerful what's termed placebo or nonspecific treatment factors are in impacting our well-being. So if we take any class or any program, whether or not it involves mindfulness and um and expect that it's going to benefit our health and well-being, and we experience um, what tend to be healing processes in these environments, like a supportive teacher, fellow participants, um, those things are healing in their own right. So, so that's probably at play here. And so it becomes increasingly difficult to really tease out what is the role of home practice in health and well-being. And so that brings me to sort of my next point, which is that from a research perspective, this method of totaling up the amount of time people meditate and correlating that with outcomes, it doesn't really show us the more nuanced day-to-day -day picture, which is that will we tend to feel better on days that we meditate versus days that we don't? And I think I think we can intuit the answer to this question. Um, for me, I definitely think I pretty much always have a better day if I meditate in the morning than if I skip that day. Um, but from a scientific perspective, it's interesting to, to take a look at this more nuanced um, this more nuanced way of looking at meditation practice. And um, I was excited to see a new study come out recently looking at this very question. And in order to, in order to answer this question, researchers need to use a more innovative technique known as intensive experience sampling. And so what that means is just participants um, respond to a lot of small little surveys throughout their day via their smartphones. So the researchers are pinging them often so they can get a sort of a granular specific picture on what people are doing, how they're thinking and feeling and how those processes unfold together in real time. So these researchers use this technique to, um, to follow about 80 adults who participated in a 21 day mindfulness meditation class. And so these participants were rating their thoughts and feelings and they were telling the researchers about how much they were meditating in real time day to day. And interestingly, the researchers found that on days where people practice meditation, they did tend to experience more positive emotions and greater mindful awareness during the hours following those practice sessions. Um, so this is a really compelling finding, and it really does suggest that daily practice matters. And they also saw that the longer people meditated on those days, the greater were those psychological benefits. And also, interestingly, they didn't see any day-to-day -day carryover effects, meaning that if people meditated on Monday, they tended to feel better on Monday. But if they meditated on Monday, it had no effect on how they felt on Tuesday. So again, that speaks to the benefits of keeping up the practice um, day to day. So, so we have some pretty compelling research data supporting the idea that we should practice meditation every day in order to benefit. And so how do we do that? How do we stick to a meditation practice? And so this is a very active area of scholarship. Um, and I think now that the efficacy and effectiveness of meditation has been established, it's really important for researchers to look at how to help folks um, adopt these practices. So I'm going to say a bit about 
um, what I see is some some clues as to what we can do to help ourselves really integrate this practice. So the first one, as Andy alluded to, is to try meditating in a group. And, and clearly, since everyone is on the call, you've already incorporated this into your into your routine, at least somewhat. Um, but when it comes to health behaviors, so exercise, meditation, brushing our teeth, wearing seatbelts, whatever it may be that's healthy for us, um, research consistently has shown for a long time that social support is so fundamental to adopting new behaviors. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And, and I think when it comes to meditation, um, you know, a specific aspect of social support is really meaningful. And that is when we watch other people do something that we also want to do, and we see them benefiting, it gives us a new sort of motivation to do it ourselves, because we're watching other people do that practice successfully and benefiting. So I think we have available to us more than ever before such a variety of online resources to help us with practice. So smartphone apps, websites. Um, and I think those tools are really phenomenal. Um, and I think it's it's important not to lose sight of the importance of a group setting for meditation. And the, the Buddhist traditions from where mindfulness meditation originated view the meditation community or meditation sangha is really an essential part of practice. Um, so I really think as much as possible, surrounding yourself with others who are walking the same path, who are also practicing, um, joining meditation groups and classes um, could really be just, just so meaningful. Um, and I think that like the role of context in our environment, on our behaviors, it's it's just so powerful. And, and this is kind of an aside, but I've always found meditation retreats to be so fascinating. So let's say like a, like a week-long retreat. Um, and I personally find it very easy to meditate from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day at a meditation retreat. But when I'm in the context of my daily life, I find it very difficult to really set aside that time. But when we're in that container of retreat, basically everyone around us is agreeing to do the same thing, which is to set aside all emotional avoidance tactics that we may use in day-to-day -day life to turn away from the present, smartphones, television, alcohol, whatever it may be, and to just be with what is together. Um, and so, so it's really profound. It's like if we enter a context with others that, that share these values and share investment in these practices, it's just gonna be much easier for us to keep up the habit. Okay, so the next area that I wanna talk about is um, the role of intentions. And so intentions really help to set the wheel of change in motion, so to speak. That is science has consistently shown in different areas of health behavior change that our intentions at least partially drive our actions. So if we forget why we intended to do something, it's much easier for the behavior to start to feel meaningless and we can be thrown off course. So each, each time you practice, I encourage you to, to pause and remind yourself why you're meditating um, and, and really pausing and letting your deepest intentions arise and contact those intentions. Um, for example, is it to live life more fully, be less emotionally reactive or, or maybe offer more compassion um, to yourself and to our world. But really letting those intentions be your guide and not losing sight of those.
The third suggestion I want to offer is to reflect on the science-backed benefits of meditation. And that's because, as I mentioned earlier, when we believe that a behavior will benefit us, we're more likely to do it. And so there are the benefits that we can intuit in our own lives, but there's also so much exciting science now around the benefits of contemplative practice on health and well-being. So for example, research suggests that meditation can increase positive emotions, reduce anxiety, improve well-being, and even prevent headaches and other and support other um, physical health related um, processes. And more research is being done on the interpersonal benefits of mindfulness. And they said studies are starting to suggest that um, these practices can also benefit our interpersonal relationships and our communities um, through helping us be more forgiving and compassionate towards others. And researchers are starting to look too about the extent to which mindfulness training can help us be better stewards of our environment as well. So again, keeping those benefits in mind um, as a support for regular practice. So another area of the literature that I wanna highlight is the role of positive emotions. And so positive emotions are really interesting in that they, they serve an evolutionary purpose. So the purpose of negative emotions are to help us survive, right? To fight, flight, fight, fight, flight, or freeze um, to escape dangers. Whereas the purpose of positive emotions is to help us explore our world and build resources and develop new skills and try new things to, to, to build these resources that we, that we need to thrive. And so interestingly, a recent study that I came across found that people who tend to experience more positive feelings in day-to-day -day life were, were more likely to start and stick to a meditation practice. Um, so that's consistent again with that evolutionary view of positive emotions is that they help us try new things to try new behaviors and build, build healthy resources. And, and somewhat similarly, another study that was published last year reported that new meditators who experienced more positive emotions during their first few meditation sessions that they tried were more likely to keep up the practice over time. So what do we what do we take from these studies? Um, so I think a couple of things um, we can think about. The first one is to really be intentional about noticing any positive feelings or sense of meaning or other benefits that emerge during and following your sessions to really contact contact positive feelings and contacting sense of meaning around your practice. And we can also be intentional about cultivating positive emotions in our daily lives in general, um, especially since we really have a negativity bias. It's, it's much easier for our minds to notice and fixate on what's negative or threatening in our environments versus slowing down and opening up to notice the positive. Um, so I imagine folks on this call may, may already be incorporating this type of practice, but um, to bolster positive emotions, I. I really recommend incorporating mindful savoring practices as well to boost um, our tendency to experience positive emotions and to counteract that negativity bias. Um, so savoring practice is a type of mindful practice in which we intentionally, intentionally notice and appreciate the pleasant sights and sounds and physical sensations 
and smells and tastes associated with a pleasant experience like a nature walk. So it involves really opening ourselves up and noticing our senses about what we're experiencing moment by moment and really absorbing ourselves in and appreciating the positive feelings that may arise. Um, and so you can do that um, sort of organically if a, if a positive experience arises, savoring that experience of mindfulness. Um, but it's also possible to be intentional about scheduling pleasant activities during your day, like time in nature, exercise, time with friends, and really using mindfulness skills to notice the positive feelings that may arise. Um, and, and I think one of the most important pieces, one of the most important recommendations might be to just be kind to yourself if you stray from your meditation goals. Um, because criticizing ourselves after we fail to behave in ways that we that we like actually undermines our ability to change. Um, I think sometimes there are cultural messages around if we sort of just will ourselves or strong arm ourselves into changing, be that around a mindfulness practice or other healthy changes we want to make in our lives. Um, that criticism really just kind of floods floods the body with with negative emotions. And so, um, you know, like I just mentioned, positive emotions are really what help us to change um, and to help us explore and try new skills. So um, this is where self-compassion really comes in. So if you notice that you've strayed from your meditation goals, um, really see if you can just invite yourself to appreciate the time that you have devoted to your practice, as well as just your intentions, your, your desire to increase your and others' well-being through meditation. And, and if you find yourself particularly caught in self-judgment, that might be a time to, to really focus on loving kindness or self-compassion med meditation practices specifically. Um, and I think it's important to recognize and accept that a consistent meditation practice does require effort. Um, I think here in the U.S., there's oftentimes a push for psychological interventions that can be done quickly and to see effects. And I, I think we can do that, but I also I also think we need to we need to recognize and let it be okay that practicing regularly does require us to put forth effort, and it requires a certain type of effort. It requires an a, an effort that's that's neither a striving, self-critical kind of effort. Um, nor kind of a, a lazy attitude in which we indulge every urge to choose distraction over mindful presence or over practice. Um, so it's really a relaxed kind of effort in which we offer ourselves, offer ourselves kindness and encouragement um, to continue on this path. And, you know, using using this concept of mindfulness, I think above all, just recognize that each moment is a fresh opportunity to start again. So no matter how far you've strayed from your meditation goals, recognizing that today is a new opportunity. Um, and just giving yourself that gift of viewing the present moment as a chance to, as a chance to start again. So those are a few areas that, that I've noticed in the literature um, that seem to support regular practice. But I think this is also 
like I mentioned, a really new active area of scholarship. And it's sort of, in my view, kind of mirroring the exercise scientific literature. So we forget this, but there was a time at which exercise wasn't really viewed as a healthy behavior that we should all be doing. In fact, it was viewed as maybe not like uh, potentially harmful, especially for older adults. Um, but then the researchers came in and so much work has been done on, on the benefits of exercise for our mental and physical health that now most of the research is centering around how do we get people to actually do this? And, and we know that there are factors that support health behavior change, you know, as I've, as I've gone over. Um, but I think more and more, we're going to start to see studies come out on meditation persistence, how to help people overcome barriers. Um, and one of my interests that I'm, that I'm pursuing now is this notion of meditation self-efficacy. So one of the biggest predictors of health behavior change is um, the confidence that we can do it. And so how do we build confidence and self-efficacy around meditation practice specifically? And so we don't really know the answer to that question. So that's, that's something I'm starting to look at um, more and more as well. So, um, so definitely stay tuned for, for more studies coming out um, around this topic. Um, yeah, but I think I hit on the key points, so I would be more than happy to take any questions or, or thoughts that folks have. Thanks, Carly, for your um, presentation so far, and just really fascinating to hear something of the factors that um, can contribute to sustaining practice. And I, I notice I know that some questions will start to come in on the chat here. Um, I, I have a question just uh, while the, uh, the, the practices start to, um, uh, sorry, the questions start to um, uh, land in in the chat. You spoke about intentions in particular. In fact, it was the number one. The first thing you spoke about was the value of setting intentions to support uh, a practice as helpful in sustaining practice, like, for example, living life more fully, paying more attention to, you know, life and the everyday and also being reactive. Um, might you say something about how people might set intentions that support practice? Is there one or two questions that people can ask themselves or phrases that they can drop into the mind that supports the, the setting of intention that you're aware of? I have a couple of thoughts on that too, if that, yeah. if that would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I will defer to the expert meditation teachers on this call, but I, I know for me, and I, I, you know, I practice as well, and I think, I think it's useful to pause and give yourself time for something to arise that feels true to your heart, but I think something along the lines of, you know, what do I care about most deeply, or, you know, what do I long for? And I think oftentimes we'll tap into to what really matters to us, which is often you know, love and care, knowing the truth, things along those lines. But I'd also be curious, Andy, if if you have suggestions as well. Yeah, that sounds lovely, Carly. So what do I care about most deeply? Um, a, 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 another version of that question also that you sometimes use is, what's most important to me in life that these practices or this practice of mindfulness meditation helps with? Just a very sim, you know, very similar. Sometimes you can just drop it into the mind at the beginning of a practice after doing a grounding, like we did at the at the beginning of uh, this evening session. What's most important to me in life, or what do I care about most? In Carly's words, there was um, 
uh, a question that we can sort of drop into the mind and ask oneself. A another one, maybe just that when you do reach the chair or the cushion or the standing practice can sometimes be, um, what brings me here? What is it that brings me here? You know, might tell us something about um, why it is we show up uh, in practice too. And, and someone here also has another quest a, a question that sort of elaborates on that, uh, uh, Carly, in a way, uh, the thank you for all the wonderful insights you've shared. Um, someone who's written here, I have a question about setting an intention for your practice. I remember being told not to set an intention when I meditate, just to focus on being present throughout the meditation. What would you say about that apparent contradiction? Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it sounds like that recommendation was made and I sort of wonder, like I do think there's a difference between contacting your deepest intention for your practice versus like setting a goal for a sitting in the sense that you're trying to sort of coerce your experience to be a certain way. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that we want to set an intention about what matters most deeply to us and how we see contemplative practice like supporting that. But I don't think we should sit down to practice and think we're trying to get somewhere. It's, you know, we don't have to manufacture any particular type of experience. Um, that being said, I think it is also healthy to set a goal outside of a particular sitting. Like, you know, I really want to meditate three times this week. You know, I mean, we like goal setting is definitely tied with successful health behavior change. So that can be something to play with to see if that works for you too. But also guarding away, guarding against getting rigid about it. If you miss one of those sessions, again, like offering that compassion and, and starting again. So yeah, those are some yeah. thoughts to mind for me. Yeah, thanks, Carly. That's really helpful. And I, I think from uh, experience of uh, working with groups as well in meditation practice, there's there's a sort of difference there that you're you're touching on between sort of striving to achieve certain goals within practice. You know, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes and I'm going to nail it in 10. You know, I'm going to be completely and utterly tranquil um, compared to maybe my intention is perhaps to be, as you suggested, maybe my intention is perhaps to be less reactive and I'm going to bring a degree of mindfulness practice and compassion and alongside this in order to to practice you know the cultivation of the development of these qualities that may support me over a period of time in life really um, yeah lovely thank you um, just looking at some of the other questions here as well could I ask about a variety of practice a full week of non-stop meditation sounds undoable for me are there shorter ones can you recommend any um, so yeah, I wonder if there's something around about does uh, the the length of practice perhaps influence perhaps uh, people uh, being able to sustain practice, for example, is there the shorter practices initially perhaps support the establishment of a meditation practice, a mindfulness meditation practice? Yes, that's that's an excellent question. Um, yes, so this. When it comes to the scientific approach to this question, studies are just starting to emerge on this question of meditation dosage, as just as you're describing, like how much should we be doing? Um, and I, I believe I am aware of one study that actually didn't see any difference between a five minute and a 20 minute meditation using a smartphone app on mental health outcomes. 
Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't want to like quote for sure because I'm not totally positive, but I do think there's also research that's even said, you know, that shorter is better for certain samples, but it's a, it's a really, in terms of the scientific perspective on this question, it's, it'll take a bit of time before we see any clear trends, but from the studies that are out so far, like my sense of it is that like, when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to new meditators, five minutes may feel like that's what fits best. And when it gets to be too long, it can start, it can feel overwhelming or it can feel too burdensome in a, in a schedule or something along those lines. Um, I think when it comes to like how it's taught in MBSR, certainly we sort of start out small and then build from there. And the health behavior change literature supports that type of trajectory. Like basically it helps if we can, we can have what's called mastery experiences where we feel like we were able to do a new thing and we felt good about that. And then from there build versus feeling overwhelmed by having to do a, a new task that we really is really unfamiliar to us. So I think collectively from those findings, we can say that starting out with just, just a couple of minutes, even like what you can do and, and getting in a group with that and maybe building from there um, could be helpful. Yeah. So it's just, just that beginning to get that momentum going by the shorter practices, beginning to incorporate the shorter practices into your life and, uh, the finding piece in a frantic world, a uh, book and curriculum and practices come to mind in particular there as well. They are often round about 10 minute practices that people can um, incorporate. And I think they're, they're, they tend to be available also on YouTube, many of those practices too, the short practices of people are interested in just beginning um, slowly but surely and building up, if you like, over a period of time and Mm -hmm. Thanks, Carly. And just interesting to hear about the science is still at the moment, you know, there, there, there's no concise and definite and, um, uh, evidence which indicates exactly what's most helpful at the moment. Yeah. Um, it, it would be wonderful maybe to come back and say more about that, maybe as and when research um, emerges that, that, yeah. that, that supports. Yes. And I think I will add that, um, you know, we have a lot of indirect evidence that like more practice over the long term leads to more benefits. Like, you know, we talk about like neuroplasticity, like changes in the brain that happen when we do something repeatedly. Like there's so much data. Well, there's a lot of like cross-sectional data where we compare like monks to novice meditators. And we see that the brain shows more thickness in areas that underlie attention and concentration things like that. And, and there is some data supporting, you know, that neuroplasticity as well in people like you and me who go through an eight week class. And so it does, you know, it takes repeated practice to see these changes. And so I think we can trust that the more we practice and for over longer periods of time, we are, we are benefiting, but, you know, this question of like five minutes versus 20 minutes, you know, that's a really direct assessment of that. That's still sort of ongoing. And um, I would also add like, not to discount that all the informal mindfulness that we can be doing throughout the day that's always available to us, you know, for just walking from meeting to meeting or, or what have you, you know, really just connecting with the sensory experience of the moment is always an opportunity to, to sort of build that muscle of mindfulness, so to speak. Yeah, lovely, actually, just so nice to mention those informal practices as, as uh, contributing to, you know, the development of um, uh, uh, sustained mindfulness within our everyday life and in many ways why are we practicing in order to 
incorporate, you know, to be more often mindful in an everyday life in one way or another. Someone actually, I think you actually said earlier on, to live life more fully, even just washing our hands, you know, and bringing attention to the feel of the warm water on skin as we do so. And, and lovely to touch on that is in as short, and as short a time as an eight-week course, that they're noticing um, changes in the brain, we're noticing cortical thickening as a consequence in those areas of the brain as a consequence of undertaking practices as part of an eight-week course. I mean, nice. Let's have a look at how we're doing for time. So we've got a couple of minutes more. Anyway, for more uh, questions, let me just have another look at the questions again here, Carly. And uh, um, yeah, someone's actually put here in a, in a, as, as a point, reminding myself that every session contributes to a change in the brain, helps me to stay with my practice. Um, there's a question here, are there, um, uh, if, my, if meditation has the biggest impact for the hours directly afterwards, should we try to meditate in the morning rather than in the evening? So are you aware of any research or have any thoughts around about whether it might be uh, more helpful to meditate at a particular time of the day? Yeah, that's also a great question. Um, I, I honestly could bet that no one has really addressed that question specifically, like had experimentally assigned people to meditating in the morning versus the evening and looking at the effects. And I think that has to do with how these methodologies that I mentioned, these intensive experience sampling methods where we're following people in real time are relatively new relative to more like basic surveys and things. Um, but I do think there actually is some evidence that that feeling positive emotions in the morning, like morning positive affect can help sort of set us on a good trajectory for the day, that there is something about that. And so to the extent that meditation practices support that, and I think they often do, that is a reason to sort of start your day with meditation. Um, but also it's sort of, there are individual differences matter. So, you know, meditation right before bed is really helpful for, you know, can be helpful for um, folks with, with sleep challenges. You know, if that helps to calm the mind, like maybe for you, if that's a challenge, like that might be your best time. And then, um, you know, I'm reminded, I, it might've been John Kabat-Zinn, I can't remember, but, you know, I'm, I'm reminded just of the, the, the point too, that like the best meditation and the best time for meditation is the one that you'll actually do. So whatever is working best for you in your specific circumstances. And if you're a morning person or not, like all that stuff matters in terms of, in terms of um, just connecting what's, what's working for you. Yeah. Thank you. So lots of factors involved there. The, 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 the morning practice perhaps can support the, the weaving of mindfulness into the day and also you you touched in and there in the positive emotions if we are practicing in a way in the morning which um activates the positive veiling system that perhaps that might infuse parts of the day as well and a really simple way of you know of, of activating the sort of positive veiling system and the positive emotions is for example you spoke earlier carly about you know, uh, walking from meeting to meeting, for example, or maybe on our morning commute to a subway station or a bus stop or um, through a park, just stopping and taking the time to maybe ground in the soles of the feet and open up to something as simple as birdsong, you know, that maybe, and to notice how that shows up in the body, perhaps, when we uh, tune into birdsong, especially at this time of year, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, where we're beginning to move into spring, to notice any emotions that arise as we tune into something like 
bird song, or indeed if you're listening to the radio, what's it like to re and you hear a, a song, a tune that you that you really enjoy and you really like, what's it like just to stop and, and tune into that, that tune and to really give it your full attention and to notice what arises in the body and, and emotions and thoughts in the mind in those moments too. It's a real value there. And, and then of course, also in the evening of, of arriving back home and just maybe allowing things to settle. And you spoke about, you know, late at night, even the value of a practice then that might support uh, uh, sleep, um, a better quality of sleep in some way or another. So Carly, this has been fascinating and really just huge appreciation on behalf of all the um, Oxford Mindfulness Foundation community, everyone that's here this evening for coming along and speaking about um, factors that based in science that uh, may well support our practice and um, as your research develops I wonder maybe at some point in the future if you might come back again and and update us. Um, uh, yeah I would that would be my honor it's it's such a privilege it's just so amazing to see people from all around the world coming together um, around these practices I think you know our world needs them so much so thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And just uh, remember uh, everyone that we have our daily practice sessions guided by OMF teachers at 1 p.m. UK time and 7 p.m. UK time, Monday to Friday, um, including sometimes the opportunity to incline the mind towards the positive, to incline the mind towards what's pleasant that we notice in our practice um, and how then that might infuse our daily life. If you aren't already registered for these, you can sign up via the website. Um, we have a social evening at 7 p.m. on the last Friday of the month. And uh, again, that might be a really good opportunity to kind of rest in you know, what's positive, what's connecting, what's nourishing. Uh, last Friday, we uh, explored uh, Susan guided a session in which we uh, explored poetry. And um, our monthly keynote is on the first Wednesday of the month normally. So we just have a, a minute or so left. And um, as is our custom with uh, OMF, um, an invitation as in when you're ready just to uh, unmute yourself and to say uh, goodbye to each other in your own language as we uh, sign off for this evening and um, yeah. see you all at practices and at other sessions again. And thanks so much for showing up and making this community what it is really. Huge appreciation and appreciation once again to Carly for uh, coming along this evening and mm -hmm. uh, offering us uh, some pointers and tips. Thank you, Andy.